Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. For this episode of the Real Chemistry podcast, Jim Weiss sat down with two important voices from the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, an organization Jim recently joined as a board member. Dr. Julie Gerberding is the president and CEO of the FNIH. Prior to joining the organization, she was the chief patient officer and the EVP of Population Health and Sustainability at Merck. Dr. Gerberding was also the first woman to serve as the director of the CDC. Dr. Jay Bradner is also a new FNIH board member. He is the former president of the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, where he led thousands of scientists in the discovery of life-changing medicines. Previously, Dr. Bradner was a clinician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and as a fellow entrepreneur, he co-founded five biotech startups. These three talk about how making medicines is a team sport, with private-public partnerships bringing together the best of the best to the table to work together. Clearly, science is on our side, and when we collaborate to take advantage of it, great things can happen. So thanks, Julie and Jay, for being with me here today. I recently joined you know, the board and the executive committee of the Foundation of the National Institutes of Health. And I'm really excited to you know, drive awareness um, and appreciation for the FNIH's new platform, you know, Building Bridges to Breakthroughs. We're excited, I know Jay is, when we talked about being part of that and your mission to connect you know, world-leading NIH researchers um, with the expertise of biopharma, academia, and nonprofit partners. So, Julie, I'm going to start with you. And I wanted to ask the question, really, what inspired you? You and I worked together on the corporate side, and, you know, I was one of the consultants, you know, that helped with Merck and Keytruda back in the day. Question now is why did you take this role next versus, you know, maybe going back to, you know, one of your prior roles like the CDC or something like that? Well, thank you for doing this, Jim. It's it's fun to have a chance to talk with you and certainly with Jay. So um, look forward to our discussion. You know, I really, for all of the different chapters of my life, have never experienced a time where science has been more exciting. I think we're really in a new world of the possibility of science, but we can tackle some really hard problems that a single organization, company, academician, we just can't solve these problems alone. So the idea of building these private, public, patient partnerships to tackle some of the most vexing problems just had held enormous appeal to me, kind of brings together all of the chapters of my career in a really exciting way. Well, that's great. And I think it's certainly what's attracted us. Jay, what what made you uh, take this role? I mean, I have similar sentiments, but I, I was curious to hear, you know, given your background and what you've been up to, you know, A, what drew you and B, what about what you've done will make you particularly uh, relevant here? You know, the allied fields of science that 
underscore the creation of therapeutic opportunities for patients are moving so fast that one organization can possibly hold all the knowledge, all the expertise. And if ever there's a team sport, it's drug discovery and drug development. And at the time that uh, Julia approached me, I was leading um, research and early drug development at a, a Swiss pharmaceutical company, Novartis. And Novartis is unique in one respect only that um, Novartis, we invent half of our own medicines, which makes this company equally interested in innovation as it is partnering and collaboration. And drug discovery is so highly collaborative that we need to be innovative, not just on what we invent, but how we invent it and how we work. And I have a longstanding interest as a physician scientist in bringing some of the learnings of, of open science that have been so radically transformative for the information technology or software sector and bringing them to one of the most famously private and competitive and secretive fields, which is biomedical research and therapeutic science. And while at NIBR, I'm serving as president, I had a chance to be a part of um, some public-private partnerships led by the FNIH and have seen uh, an opportunity to really bring the best of, of even competitors to the table to create a, a momentous and rising tide that can support you know, the development and uh, a breakthrough therapeutics for patients with life-threatening diseases. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting having started my career in 92 at Genentech, and I mean 1992 for those that don't know that <laughs> era. Um, I remember, you know, there was such criticism of companies using NIH science, right, and 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 how that, I, I feel that the, the world's changed. Would you say that's true with respect to how companies work with the public science entities? For sure. I mean, to be clear, all great scientific innovation, you know, builds on an incredible foundation of fundamental knowledge, um, fundamental insights into technologies. And I wish that the understanding of the molecular basis of disease was moving as fast as therapeutic modalities right now, but that is not true. Academia has become quite translational. Industry may be burned by some aspired opportunities has become more basic. And I now perceive that the academy, government science, and industry are all playing in the same pond, working towards the same ambitions to have a clarified understanding of disease, and then to create or imagine the right therapeutic technology to have a great impact. And so, you know, the oft-described differences between academia and industry are getting pretty narrow and thin these days which could and should make us optimal collaborators. I mean, do you see it differently, Julie? Do you think it'll speed things, the, the ego? Because the ego felt in that, you know, the sort of corporate ego of what not invented here or vice versa, where I feel like there's more openness than there used to be. Yeah, you, you know, I think a little bit of ego is a healthy thing wherever you are in the world. So you want people to feel inspired and, you know, to have the excitement, the passion and the ownership to try to move the field forward. But you know, humble scientists recognize that no one can do this alone. And I, I think the wise crowd uh, is particularly important when you're taking on issues like systems biology or complex pathway exploration to try to identify new biomarkers or 
um, certainly in the whole field of gene therapy, we have so much more to benefit by helping all boats float a little higher in the water than everybody going off and cooking up their own gene therapy in their bathtub. So we, we've got to really recognize where that kind of collaboration is truly value creating and situations where, no, we need to you know, stick to your knitting. If you're an academician, you can do these things well. If you're in industry, this is our strength. If you're in FNIH, our strength is project management and hurting the lions and trying to make sure that these complex projects move in the linear direction and get to gateways and milestones. And we actually have something to show for it at the end. But the spirit of the collaboration is, is I think, a very powerful and increasingly relevant motivator, particularly to young scientists um, who want to be part of something bigger than their own kind of traditional project. It's also important to appreciate what's happening in academia and in funding for um, the research that NIH supports. We're certainly appreciating the plus up in budgets, but they're not plussing up fast enough to really um, get to the younger creative scientists earlier enough in their career. Um, we've got to find ways to inspire them and to keep them connected and learning from other mentors so that, you know, ultimately we all benefit. When somebody succeeds, we can all move the whole field together a little bit faster. Well, that's great. You actually helped answer some, a little bit of the, or lead us into the next question. I, I'd like to do a little bit of foundation rock, like schoolhouse rock. Um, some people might interpret uh, by its name that the FNIH is part of the government, but it really isn't. Can you explain the difference between the FNIH and the NIH and how the two complement one another, work together um, in this landscape? You know, it's, it's, it is confusing, and we benefit from having the NIH in our title because there's a lot of credibility and tradition wrapped up in that, but we are different. FNIH is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It was created by Congress more than 25 years ago to solve a problem that the government really struggles with, and that is how do you appropriately engage with the private sector? If you want to build partnerships that include government and, and, and private life science companies or digital health companies or whatever the case may be, you, in a sense, have to have some middleware. And I think what FNIH has evolved over the past several years is not just an efficient place for those partnerships to get forged from a financial and management perspective, but the idea of vetting partners, vetting private-public partnership programs using a set of criteria that we think are most likely to be valuable to the NIH, but also to further the field that we're approaching in the therapeutic areas that are, are the most vexing for people. So that um, in the course of all of that, our core mission, of course, is to support the mission of the FNIH, which is actually pretty broad. So we're not very limited in the kinds of things that we can do. We're talking mainly here about team science and how we help support and manage the projects that are um, in that space. But FNIH also supports scientists. So we have a number of very prestigious awards to scientists, including the Lurie Prize for Biomedical Science and the Trailblazer Award for clinician scientists. And then ultimately, I think we work hard on broadly on global equity. 
Many people don't realize that the FNIH has several of the Gates Grand Challenges programs, for example, in TB, malaria, HIV, and maternal mortality. So we're not just working on the U.S. domestic side of the equation. We're actually working with other NIH institutes on a more global agenda, trying to find innovative solutions to some of these um, very, very challenging problems for people who aren't in resource wealthy countries. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about funding. So, you know, how is the FNIH funded? Those who fund it, what do they get out of it? I mean, obviously, one of the things we want out of this podcast and awareness is a diversification of funding as well and getting, you know, new and creative projects funded. So how how does that work? Let me start with the second part of your question first, and, and that is what's in it for the partners. Um, in a typical um, team science program, we have one or more NIH Institute who's very much part of the partnership and puts skin in the game in terms of their own resources. But we also have um, life science companies, some small biotech companies with more advanced portfolios and certainly large pharmaceutical companies. But increasingly, we have other life science partners like people who make um, scanners or digital monitoring equipment so that we're bringing in a broad set of players who normally don't have the opportunity to work together. And what's really exciting about these partnerships is that um, as we build a portfolio and define the scope of work, design the study, so to speak, everybody contributes um, always on a scale appropriate to what they are able to contribute. And that's becoming increasingly clear as we're bringing more and more patient organizations into our partnerships in meaningful ways where they don't have the resources, but they certainly have the knowledge and the perspective that we definitely want to include end-to-end in everything we're doing. But when you step back away from it, I think the differentiating dimension of FNIH is that we have the best scientists in the world at the NIH working with some of the best scientists in academia and the best scientists in the R&D world of our life sciences companies. Where else do you bring those people together to focus on a problem in a pre-competitive space and just tap into these different perspectives and disciplines and knowledge and come forward with, I think, some really meaningful Um, results that help bring the whole process of translating science into medicines that matter faster and hopefully more efficiently. Well, you know, it's interesting having Jay on and his perspective from Novartis. I'd love to hear as a participant in the private sector for many, many years, you know, what that discipline will bring here. And then I'd love to talk a little bit about the examples of things that have moved forward because of FNIH and give people an example, a living example of what all that great science and scientists coming together has produced, how fast. My assumption is, Jay, that someone like you coming on board will help us in this organization maybe think more like a pharma or you know uh, a partner in that way. Tell me how you do that. Thanks, Jim. Um, the learnings of being first a, an academic professor and more biotech entrepreneur, and then until November of last year, leading this research institute within Novartis and deeply in the private sector, I do hope that some of these learnings about successes and real obstacles can read through 
um, to Julie and her team, creating these spaces, these safe spaces for innovation and ultimately, you know, for impact. You know, breakthrough medicines, when they do arise, they come from really fundamental insights, if not the atomic resolution on how a disease works. But that knowledge alone doesn't create medicines. It's the intellectual adjacency of scientists expert in creating therapeutic technologies, leveraging those insights, but ideally still collaborating with those biologists that produce our, our most important medicines. And it's just every single time. But I gotta be honest, there are significant barriers to collaboration in the private sector. When I was a professor, for the price of a cup of coffee, we could take a molecule from our fume hoods as a chemist or chemical biologist and, and bring it into a brand new animal model across the street um, at a neighboring institution or across the Atlantic Ocean at the right European investigator. But in industry, collaborations are very difficult to engender. They um, require multi-million dollar contracts to access technologies that everybody should have access to, like CRISPR, or those same animal models that I was referring to a moment ago. And there's dozens of lawyers in between the two scientists trying to initiate, you know, a provocative but admittedly early collaboration. And this is just a major issue that I don't have a solution for, but I do believe that we need new sandboxes, new playgrounds, new models for these scientists to more seamlessly interact. And these sandboxes need to be built probably before real value is created because people get really grabby grabby as soon as there's value on the table. So I joined the FNH board because I so admire Julie and what she's bringing from her own experience in academic, public sector, and private sector science to create these spaces. Each one is a social experiment that has the potential to accelerate impact, but we got to get the details right. The uncomfortable details around credit, around budget and resource, around intellectual property, because these are powerful motivators, nothing to be afraid of. They're, they're powerful motivators to, you know, to ultimately bring the, the therapeutic solutions that don't exist to the patients that need them most. Well, what, I mean, Julie, there've been success here, right, at FNIH. What are some of the wins that we want to replicate? Sure. So, I mean, an obvious one that I think illustrates all of the points that Jay was making was active. The effort that the NIH, FNIH, FDA, and many other partners within government, but also many partners in the private sector pulled together to prosecute the portfolio of therapeutics and um, immunologic approaches to managing serious COVID illness. Some 800 compounds were screened. Uh, ultimately, 33 were prioritized and put into clinical trials that were prosecuted in rapid speed. Um, some of the trials found therapies that were helpful. And importantly, some of the trials proved that popular and poorly substantiated therapies didn't work. So in an enormously um, attenuated timeline, we were able to find meaningful information in the context of the pandemic. Um, obviously, that was an unprecedented situation and everyone felt the urgency. So it was easier to do things in series, uh, excuse me, in parallel and not in series. But um, that is a mental model that I think we're working on trying to replicate. A more specific example of value is something that was just recently launched that is um, 
eight clinical studies of gene therapies for rare or ultra rare diseases. Now, there are a host of genes that are disease causing in people, and Jay can tell you a lot more about those, but we don't aim to solve all genetic diseases. What we aim to do through this partnership, which now has 10 NIH institutes and some 33 uh, private partners, including several patient organizations, what we're aiming to do is work with the FDA and the regulatory process to try to improve the manufacturing of the vector that deliver the gene therapy so that little companies that might only have a very limited amount of resource to put into an exciting therapy to benefit a few patients are, have less uncertainty about how to get their product manufactured and safely into patients. Likewise, the consortium is aiming to try to understand and create predictability about the regulatory pathway. When you have a rare disease, you can't do a randomized phase three clinical trial to compare placebo with treatment because there just aren't enough patients to be able to do that. So we have to have other uh, regulatory paths to get drugs available to patients faster. And by working together, we think we can collaborate and solve some of these underlying opportunities that will benefit all gene therapy programs, perhaps. So um, it's ambitious, but I think we're uh, taking advantage of our ability to bring a consortium of like-minded people together and concentrate on a solution that hopefully will benefit some of the partner companies, but also will benefit anybody who's trying to move forward in this space. Well, yeah. And Jay, I guess a question for you with funding being, you know, difficult these days for the small startup and the fact that big pharma not you know, isn't going to fund them until there's some proof of concept. Is this a solution partnering with FNIH? Is that one of the ways like this program Julie just talked about? Or, or do people get that? Do they realize or understand maybe you can bring that perspective to them? You know, do the venture capitalists, do we need to sort of educate them about this opportunity to move some things along faster? There's an opportunity for the platforms, the partnerships that the FNH creates to better benefit the biotech and the venture community. And I think also maybe not educate, but maybe just elevate the awareness of these activities and their accessibility to those groups. A few of them might really buy in, even in, to fulfill their most selfish objectives, to learn, to access data they don't have to pay for, and to meet scientists with complementary expertise. You know, at Nibber, we had 5,600 associates. And so typically a leading expert was already in the building. You know, I founded five biotech companies before joining Novartis. And these companies are much, much smaller. And attractively, they're much more focused. The expertise may even run quite a bit deeper in those environments. Partnerships like these, um, they bring that depth of expertise into physical and intellectual adjacency. It's a license to collaborate. And this creates online collaborations, you know, well articulated in the prospectus of these groups, but it brings a lot of offline collaborations together. And those are, are massively valuable. Companies like Novartis will bring or create within these partnerships very valuable data sets from precious human samples of on-treatment biopsies of amino-oncology agents. And I can say as a former academic, these data sets are just a delicious opportunity to ask questions that maybe companies wouldn't be interested in or wouldn't think to ask. 
So I think there's a big opportunity for biotechs to leverage the networks and, and hopefully also really contribute to, um, to reading these investments of time and resource through to impact for patients. And did the five startups, you did they ever explore or work with NIH? Is that how you knew about FNIH or not? Uh, two of them did, although not through the FNIH, which didn't exist at that time. Um, but the very first company I started, we made a, a topical soft drug, a drug that would work on skin diseases, but not then um, damage other parts of the body by chemically designing it to be destroyed by the bloodstream. And um, wanting to bring that medicine to patients without traditional venture-backed private investment, I wrote for and received what's called a, a RAID grant, Rapid Access to Intervention Development, and got to work with you know, really expert drug developers within the NIH and the NCI in that case to accelerate that medicine. And though that medicine would ultimately be brought to human clinical investigation by a traditional venture-backed company, um, that contract with the NCI expedited the identification of a clinical candidate and I think had a big impact of helping me as an academic investigator become much more knowledgeable about drug development. So as Julie mentioned, the NIH and the NCI have a rich longitudinal history of accelerating therapeutic concepts and development. And so how could these partnerships not be as successful going forward as we enjoyed during during COVID, as Julie nicely articulated? I mean, Julie, do you think a lot of today's breakthrough science and products, is that all traceable back to NIH or or, are they cited to the degree maybe they might be more? I mean, do they get the credit that's due them? What do you think? I, I go back to what Jay said earlier in our conversation. I mean, everything in science builds on somebody else's shoulders. And I think we're creating a false dichotomy like, well, NIH did that or industry did that or this one owns this property and this one has that intellectual property. I think the more we can foster that spirit of knowledge is shared, how we apply that knowledge and create commercial value from it is a very different thing. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we argue about the limits of those opportunities. And I don't think that argument is completely resolved yet, especially when it comes to creating global good. So, you know, it's a healthy and important thing to explore. But I can't imagine that our life sciences industry would be where it is today if it wasn't for the NIH. But I also think that the medicines and vaccines that we have today would not be there if it wasn't for our life sciences industry. So we we each bring something really important to the table. And I just feel very blessed to be a small part of it. Right. Well, it seems like the FNIH, as we move forward together, developing it and growing it together, which is sort of what drew me here was to continually demonstrate how those work together and we become more of a linker for that, you know, more consistently, again, by showing the the results of the work. You know, there's one other thing I should touch on, Jim, because it it is um, something I'm just recently kind of becoming aware of, and that is the shared data aspects of this. Um, you know, there's a strong, everybody wants to own their own data, but increasingly we're finding out that you can answer more questions by federating that data and allowing more people to query it in appropriate approaches or by pooling the data. For example, we've seen um, companies who have been exploring drugs for osteoporosis 
And normally in osteoporosis, you have to do a very big study for a very long period of time because the end result of the study was fracture. And, you know, fortunately that takes a long time to develop. But by pooling information about the biomarkers in a set of patients that can predict reliably um, a reduction in fractures, you can shorten the design of your clinical studies using that as a surrogate endpoint, those biomarkers. That kind of information would never come out of a single company study. You have to be able to pool information from a variety of data sets that others have created. And that's exactly what's happened. By pooling information across a number of different studies of osteoporosis, some very promising biomarkers have been discovered and validated. And now we're in the process of getting them qualified at the FDA so that they can be legitimately used by anyone who wants to study osteoporosis. And this is important because it makes it more feasible and more efficient to do studies of therapies in osteoporosis. That's just an example of kind of the hidden value of the collaboration. And this unlocks massive value because I can say as a former pharmaceutical company executive, that if we were to come to the FDA and say, no, no, believe us, this biomarker is really important. They might say, they might be right to suspiciously ask. Well, is this really mapped to your medicine? Is this only in your interest? Will this really be arising tonight? And I think groups like the FNIH are really the only credible groups to bring data across the dimensionality of different patient populations, different therapeutic mechanisms to really qualify a biomarker for everybody's use and to be credible in bringing that argument forward. So let's keep going. What are the most exciting emerging areas today? I mean, you talked about gene therapy and you talked about some of these orphan diseases. I sat in on a PAC meeting, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about that and cancer, but what Jay would you say are the most exciting imminent, you know, near-term opportunities that you see here? Well, I'm a modalities guy. I'm a therapeutics technology guy. And so I don't want to take too much time. So I'll just give you some bullets. I think that gene therapy really is coming of age. And so the investment at the FNIH to try to accelerate the next wave of gene therapies to get beyond just gene replacement and to make viruses that are quite selective for this tissue or that tissue, to imagine payloads that don't just restore a gene that a patient was born without, but maybe even deliver for long-term expression, um, exposure, a therapeutic gene. I think this is really exciting. Secondly, um, cellular therapeutics. I'm a stem cell transplant doctor by training and practice. And, you know, it's quite barbaric what we do to reboot a human immune system by giving life-threatening chemotherapy and then the donation of an unmodified stem cell to repopulate the immune system. What we can do now with CAR T-cell therapy, with engineered blood stem cells, is just extraordinary. And this next generation of cellular therapies has not been imagined yet. And so there's a real need for blue sky, academic, government, and, you know, translating industrial scientists to work together. And then third, as a small molecules chemist guy, I really love this idea of modular therapeutics. Most drugs today, they bind and inhibit a protein. They bind and activate a protein. But scientists like those I work closely with are imagining molecules that can short-circuit disease processes, bringing two proteins into adjacency, 
you hear about bispecific antibodies, antibody drug conjugates, heterobifunctional degraders or protacts. This is a really fertile and creative space. And so, you know, if I'm being honest, what's really holding us back is the understanding of disease with atomic resolution. But, you know, this is well-resourced by government science and many industrial scientific outfits like NIBR. What we have opened us right now is to bring these really creative new modalities forward with just like the intentionality of, of a single patient that might, might most benefit. Well, you know, what do you think the biggest challenges are navigating NIH to accomplish that faster? I mean, that's, again, our reason for being. What do you think, Julie? What are you experiencing? Well, you know, as, as a former government uh, servant, um, I recognize that government has enormous strengths, but the speed of government is not the same speed as the speed of industry. And so being able to catalyze and accelerate things, particularly when an institution like the NIH is not clear whether a budget will be passed in any given year or doesn't have complete um, political support for some of the priority areas of program research. So I, I think there are challenges. It's an enormous organization. It's the best in the world, but it has um, you know, some intrinsic challenges that are just part and parcel of being a government institution. And you know, science works at a certain pace, but there are things you can do to speed that up. And one of the ways that FNIH is trying to help with this is when the NIH doesn't have a budget or hasn't come into their next fiscal year where they can spend new money on new projects, by raising money so that we have the flexible money, we can help get things started faster. We can get out there, we can design programs, get the other partners involved and engaged and get started so that the NIH, in a sense, gets a jump start. And when they can come in with, with all of their resources to expand the portfolio. Well, the public expectation from the great example of the vaccines and the drugs for COVID would indicate, okay, if we could get 800 some odd drugs, as you said, and vaccines and treatments evaluated, why can't we work with that speed on all these other things? I think there's almost an expectation that'll happen. So maybe the rest <laughs> of what you're going to say will address that promise that Okay, now we're going to apply this to cancer. Now we're going to apply this to other incredible urgent needs. But, you know, the question really is, how are these other things going to move quickly? You know, I'm a person who likes to go fast. Um, and in FNIH, we want to go fast and farther. So we've got to make choices. And I can scale that up to the NIH has to make the same um, sort of choices because, yes, there are some things that they can prosecute very rapidly. And there are other things that just have to unfold at, at a pace of science and exploration. And we can't expect the COVID um, performance to happen all at once. I know it's been said many times, but obviously, again, the COVID um, speed was built on the shoulders of a lot of people who had been working on vaccines and antivirals before the pandemic actually emerged. So um, that advanced work really paid off. But I, I also, like Jay, I, I feel that these platforms or these modalities that we're gaining experience with, um, one of them that I'm particularly interested in is antivirals for single-stranded RNA viruses. Um, I I can't believe I'm saying this as a former head of a vaccine business, but you know, in in preparedness, I think we need to really think about small molecule solutions that are 
multi-purposed or can easily be adopted, mainly because we've learned that it's going to be very hard to vaccinate the world, even if people trusted vaccines. And small molecules are a lot easier to make in many parts of the world that can't even dream of making a vaccine. And so um, it's an important dimension of our biosecurity agenda that we probably haven't paid enough attention to. So it's great that the NIH is investing in the academic centers that are working on these, but we need the private sector to get involved in this area as well. That leads to a whole different thinking about how we accelerate the development of biosecurity medicines, which I predict is going to increasingly look like Department of Defense government contracting and not so much the traditional competitive commercial model that we've come to be used to with most of our ordinary medicines. But that's just an example where the lesson learned from COVID, I think, is setting a stage for a selective utilization of some real accelerants of progress for things that are of global importance. Well, I, I want to ask Jay, you know, the small molecule question got more difficult with the IRA bill that came through that I guess creates less incentive for industry to develop a small molecule than a biologic. So can you address why they, they sound like they're competing and somewhat confusing uh, messages to us? You know, um, I'll answer your question, but more to extrapolate it to really, I think, the fundamental challenge that we have in this moment right now, which is trust. Though I'm not a policy expert, um, it is true that there are aspects of legislation like the IRA that are um, really positive and positively intentioned towards making the massive resource that we deploy in the United States for science and medicine uh, um, more optimal in its allocation and to anticipate innovation for years to come. But there are aspects that regrettably have an impact on the um, type of medicines that now will be created. And we can go deep on that here another time. But, you know, I, I think that maybe IRA and other things are just maybe more symptomatic of the fundamental challenge that we seem to have at this moment right now. Ironically, at a time, as Julie said, when we've never been better equipped to take on some of the toughest diseases of our time, is we seem to sort of have just sort of lost trust, trust in science. It's it's easier said than done, trust in each other. You know, somehow science got weaponized in the last few years. And there's nothing less partisan than cancer or Alzheimer's disease or pandemic prevention or historically even vaccination. And, and I'm not a very political fellow, I'll tell you plainly, but amidst the intense polarization of the last decade, we seem to have lost ingoing trust in science, scientific methods, and in scientists, all of us, by the way. And I get it. We're very, we're right to be skeptical of data, right to be skeptical of for-profit institutions in industry, but equally for-credit institutions in academia, both under real financial pressures. And, and we're right to be skeptical of scientists. And by the way, nobody is more skeptical of scientists than scientists. <laughs> and nobody's more skeptical of data than scientists who didn't generate that data. But the scientific process is to be skeptical and to make the most of the information that we have and to believe in our methodology to elaborate partial truths en route to unambiguous truths. And yes, um, the IRA and other manifestations of this lack of trust are emergent and important. But unless we really get to the fundamental crux of it, 
which is to better understand the scientific process, what it can and can't do, to become more expert and less monosynaptic and reactionary, we're going to ironically hold back this chance that we have, that we've worked so hard to have, which is to bring these incredible thinkers together in an environment that lets them do their most impactful career-defining research in, in an unencumbered and empowered way. And we're, we're not there yet. Well, thanks, Jamie. That's why I joined, right? I feel like my expertise connections are to help bridge that part of this situation. And that's what I've worked with Julian in the past on, um, you know, creating, you know, better perception or a more realistic perception and basically telling, all right, guys, like, we're all going to get cancer. We know someone who has it. We got to fix this. This is how we're going to fix it. And I think, thank you so much for segueing to that because i do think that you know if you could snap your fingers and change one thing about the country's perception of health and science i'd love to ask each of you what would that be and then there are initiatives we're working on with dr reed tuxen for example julie right that program he's started maybe you can speak a little bit to that that's something we're supporting and uh you know want to see more of but that's number one i mean what how would you what are we doing to change that perception? And can NF can I think FNAH can play a role in that? Thank you. Um, and before I forget to say it, I'm sitting here looking at the two of you and thinking, you know, you're joining our board has just made a great board even greater. <laughs> so I'm so lucky to to be able to benefit from your experience and wisdom. Um, so let me say just a couple of things about the Coalition for Trust in Science and Health. I think the first observation we made when a small group of us came together and realized that this is what's killing more people than probably even cancer is the distrust that they're experiencing in the value of medicines and vaccines. Um, we realize that we can't create trust. We have to earn it. And there are a lot of mistakes that have been made in how science has been approached, how science has been communicated, and how scientists and other thought leaders have responded to people's skepticism and confusion. And so part of what we're what we're trying to do is step back away from that and really understand the root causes of this, um, to put the science behind it together, to understand all of these organizations that are all trying to do something about the challenge of trust, what's working and what isn't. But also to recognize by signing up you know, more than 40 very large organizations and institutions and AAAS, for example, um, that we cover a huge uh, number of thought leaders and educated, knowledgeable people in science and medicine. Our job is not to challenge freedom of speech. Our job is not to solve all the misinformation problems that exist in the social media world or even to identify the dangerous disinformation and push back on that. But we've got to create a network of people who can speak to the best of their ability to the science, what we do know, what we don't know, and what we're working on, and have voices heard that balance some of the egregious misinformation and disinformation that's circulating. You know, it's one thing for any one of us to speak up and point out misinformation, but when you have 300,000 people who have 
uh, a balancing argument to make and they use their networks or their social media challenges, then you're beginning to balance the conversation. And we are aiming to make sure that the full picture of medical information, health information is, is presented in the media where people are extracting their information. And by the way, each of us has friends and family who are probably struggling with their own trust issues. We can be ambassadors in a very small pond as well as in the big ocean where some of us are allowed to, to participate. So it's a long haul and we've got a lot to learn, but I think getting mobilized to, to work harder to make sure that the balancing messages are available to people and that they have the information they need to make the decisions that they're facing, which are usually very complex and hardly anybody's really prepared to make a cancer treatment decision on their own, et cetera. So we've got to have the trust in the people who do know. Yeah, I take it one step further, Julie. I, how do we get trust? I mean, amidst all these skeptical scientists, the reason that the truth sort of prevails within scientific communities is there's real accountability for being connected with misinformation. You're not going to last very long in a scientific community if the theory that you're advancing is proven incorrect. And one of the challenges I think we have right now is there's so much misinformation being um, espoused with really no accountability whatsoever. In fact, many of those who espouse misinformation, they only get richer, they only get more popular, they only have more followers on their channels. And by the way, this is on both sides of the quote-unquote aisle. And so I, I think really, if I could snap my fingers to get us closer to trust, I think it would be for those fanning the fire to feel a little bit the weight of accountability for what they do and bringing so many people along. Um, you know, I will tell you this, I'm an American and a capitalist, and I love, as a cancer doctor, that there's a huge multi-million dollar reward out there for the scientists who imagine a cure for pancreatic cancer that killed my dad. And I delight in the fact that those incentives exist to expedite the advancement of such medicines, to corral the resources necessary to um, imagine what a cure for that disease might look like. And the same is true for Alzheimer's disease, even in this moment where we're enjoying incremental progress. But there doesn't appear to be the same accountability today for misinformation that there was before. And it's leading to some bad behaviors that are eroding trust in a scientific process that I, I still firmly believe in. Well, I think my lesson, having worked in this for years on flu vaccines and, and other things that we faced, what we really learned is that the naysayers are important, but you really have to keep, you know, the, the positive information flowing because there's way more of that. So as a, as a practitioner and what I do in information, we need to get the word out as to what FNIH has done, what NIH has done, what there's been so much more progress than has been truly communicated and accurately. So people like us, the three of us on this call have to do that more. We have to bring in a whole audience that such as, you know, private equity, venture capitalists, hedge funds, and other institutions that have helped, you know, the, the private sector uh, biopharma industry be, to become envy of the world. We've got to do the same thing here. We got to get them involved in this fight a little bit. Some of them are in, not all of them are in. Um, health is wealth. Health is in the NIH's name. 
And I think the opportunity here is to show people that, you know, this partnership that's forming and we hope to grow like a small startup. We want to grow this into something. Jay, we need a voice out there that is bigger and, you know, more, uh, I think, compelling than the misinformation. I don't I don't think in a world of AI we're going to ever stop it. You're right. There has to be accountability. There also has to be more information getting out there in the hands of influencers that have even more followers to come and learn about this mission. And that's really, I know, a lot of my goal here is to get, you know, those influencers educated about exactly the wonderful things that you're undertaking, starting with the gene therapy projects, which are somewhat unassailable, all of the cancer work that's getting done. You're already beginning to see the slivers of that with pancreatic cancer. And God knows my my wife herself is going through bowel cancer treatment right now. And, you know, we can't go fast enough here um, for everybody. Everyone's going to get hit by the bouncing ball. You do. So that's why this and this work is so critical and so important. I mean, Julie, if you wanted our audience to remember one thing about FNIH's role in this, what would it be? I think the the most important big picture really is that science is on our side and we have to work hard as a society to take advantage of that. And Jay, what do you think? I mean, you know, you, you joined it with optimism, not, I know you have some pessimism that you've, you know, indicated around misinformation, but I think when you think optimistically, you know, cause you wouldn't entrepreneurs like us do, um, you know, we, we have we we can't help ourselves. Um, we really believe there's a greater good. What do you, what do you think? Well, the rate determining step, the slow step for radical advances in therapeutics is one part scientific, but it's also one part social. Um, the scientific piece is in cancer precision prevention. No drug company is going to lead in that. Has to be a government lab. Um, in cardiovascular disease, polygenic risk. Why is that not a test in every doctor's office? Um, in neurodegenerative disease, in autoimmunity, it's basic research. We just don't understand how those diseases work. Once we crack those codes, ah, the companies, the biotechs, the big pharmas, the academic labs, they'll make the medicines. But that's the slow step right now. Technologies that can get big molecules systematically into the cells. We don't have that yet. But the social construct, as we talked about earlier in this um, really energizing interaction is equally challenging and really can be the slow step. We have to tinker with the way we do science and be as innovative in how we assemble around the big challenges. And I don't see the United States a group better equipped to be that sandbox than the FNIH. So Julie, what do you, if you're successful in this job that you took, what are the three things you say you will have accomplished by the time you hand the reins over to someone else, if you ever do? Well, we're very excited about expanding our partnership model to be more inclusive of a broader kind of partner, um, including our patient organizations, but also digital science partners, uh, big data partners, and global partners, because um, we really respect the global nature of the work that team science can accomplish. 
So that's one thing. It's just taking advantage of what we think is our differentiating capability and scaling it in a way where we can help the NIH more and bring more partners to the table in these places where complex problems need to be solved that will take that team science approach I think the second thing is, of course, the thing that every leader says, and that is you want to build a team of people who are much better than you are, but also um, a team that can really take you further and farther than than you could do yourself. And I'm so fortunate to have inherited from um, Maria Ferrer and her leadership of FNIH a wonderful team already. So um, I'm in great shape there, but we are expanding our bench and depth of the scientists that we have in the organization. We have some brilliant scientists, um, wonderful PhDs, passion-driven. If anybody wants to work in a place where you can exercise collaborative science and do things with the most amazing scientists in the world, think about FNIH because we've got a great portfolio here. But, you know, ultimately for me personally and professionally, I'm like everyone else who's in this field. I want to make a difference. And I really want to feel like um, we're not just conducting science for science sake, that at the end of the day, people are truly better off. There is better health, better pathways to changing health status, or at least um, modifying pain and suffering for people wherever they live, not just those people who live in affluent environments, but for people everywhere. Um, That's a big grandiose theme, but it's something that's carried with me since I was four years old, and I hope it carries with me for another 40 years or so. I think we're all in it to make the world a healthier place, particularly America, and that, you know, we make the most of the investments that we've put into it. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, Jay, if you've got some closing thoughts for us, you know, and and what you see us adding. I mean, I like I said, I see my role is making, you know, the FNIH mission clear uh indicating its positive intent and you know getting more players to the table i know that's one of yours but any other thoughts before we wrap it up i see my role as really being a resource um, to you julie ideas introductions um energy and um you know maybe having seen an awful lot of science uh, progress and, and even more science not progress is to help to be just really scrutinizing about how to best deploy this vital resource for the greatest possible, you know, human impact on health and disease. And it's a it's an honor to work so closely with you and your outstanding team. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, we've created a lot of success together in the past, Julie, particularly with probably, you know, one of the great products, drugs that's ever come out of industry. You know that, um, you know, well, a couple of them, obviously. Um, and we know a big impact can get made and it starts the ball rolling. And I don't know my view and I'll leave it finally. And I leave with a lot of optimism um, around where we are and where we can go. Um, I know that's not always the prevailing view, but you need people like that too, who believe we can. And I think we will. So Julie, Jay, really appreciate your being part of the Real Chemistry podcast. Real Chemistry is about you know, creating those bonds that, you know, make impact. And uh, I look forward to working with you in the future to do that. Thanks, Jim. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.